I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert number 57 for October. Uh, I'm Simon, uh, and I've been re-listening to some of our very first Spoiler Alert podcast recently. Uh, I shook my head wearily at me describing the Green Lantern as generic superhero origin template number 22. Um, like if only I'd known then how the next five years of blockbuster movie going would play out. <laughs> uh, I also had to smile at our collective childish excitement in a film that we were almost describing as great, and we hadn't even seen it yet. Prometheus. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's like, it's like <laughs> that awkward acne stage, you know? Like yeah, you just, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally we don't do that, but we were so thrilled to be seeing that film. Yeah, yeah. And instead, we're, I think they probably taught us a lesson. Now we're cautiously optimistic about cautiously. everything. Yeah, yeah. Everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. <laughs> I'm Duncan, and I'm a big fan of the Hitchcock one-setting films. Uh, obviously, Rear Window, but also Rope, which I know my um, illustrious collaborator here is partial to. And the excellent lifeboat, uh, but I always forget that Dial M for Murder is a one-set film as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I always forget that. I always yeah, think, so, oh, yeah. No, I never thought of it that way either. So, Simon, what have you been watching? Right, uh, 1939's Dark Victory, starring Betty Davis, a decent watched, doomed to be released in the same year as Mister Smith Goes to Washington, Of Mice and Men, Nanochka, which starred the luminous Greta Garbo, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz. And a little film called Gone with the Wind. Mm. That's a year, eh? That is a hell of a year. Um, it's pretty melodramatic, but Davis manages to land on the right side of scenes which could sink lesser actresses. Uh, it's a truism that became a song title, that became a cliche that remains true, that Davis always had the most expressive, fascinating eyes. Uh, and she's great to watch. Bogart is miscast as a horse trainer with an inconsistent Irish brogue. <laughs> Amazing. And Ronald Reagan crops up as a lush with a heart of gold. Uh, but this is for fans of Davis, really. Yeah. If you if you're going to watch her, I need to watch more um, Betty Davis. She is really good, and you know I've seen her in some a couple of things recently that I had seen long ago, uh, Death on the Nile, and um, and of course whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. I recently rewatched those, um, and she's just wonderful, and she's like such great range, and you know, uh, the, and like you say, the 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 eyes really there's a vulnerability and there's also a scariness to it. Yeah, and that's you know that's something that can't be taught. It's born with. So yeah, yeah, yeah. she's really she, good. She makes this film work a lot better than I think it should. It's not yep. a terrible film. I'm not. I'm not saying that, but she managed to elevate it, you know, quite a lot. Mm. Uh, look, I, I was describing 2007's Shoot 'Em Up to my wife uh, like this. So Clive Owen just killed a man with a carrot, and now he's delivering a baby during a gunfight. Sounds plausible, she said. So I said, and then during a gunfight, he had sex with Mon- Monica Bellucci, who's a hooker specialising in guys with like. Suckling fetishes. Uh, and he has a shootout with, while free falling from a plane. And then he shot Paul Giamatti by holding a bunch of bullets between his fingers and then just like holding his hand up to a fire. And then he crashed his car head on to a van full of bad guys, flew through the window, into the back of the van, and then turned around and shot everyone. Also, he killed a bunch of dudes by firing his gun with a carrot. Uh, and I realised I was making this film sound a lot more fun than it probably was to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so over the top, it's a parody, and I enjoyed it kind of from that vantage point. But the enjoyable excess becomes, at some point, just excess. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not seen it, no. It's, it's, it's quite batty. I mean, it's yeah. insane at the get-go, and at first you're like, wow, this is crazy. But it doesn't let up on that. And yeah. It becomes noise at some point. 
and and so into my horror movie viewing. Uh, Brian Yasner, producer of The Reanimator and director of a spoiler alert fave, Society, also produced and directed a segment of the Lovecraft-inspired anthology film Necronomicon, which I saw this month. Uh, I say Lovecraft-inspired because even though Jeffrey Combs plays the man himself in a wraparound story, the three tales play fast and very loose with the source material. In fact, most of the stories are really pretty weak source. But fortunately, as a showcase for practical, gooey special effects, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's full of tentacle monsters, explodey heads, and full body melts that had me practically squealing with delight. <laughs> the odd amateur piece of CG pops up and threatens to ruin it all, but for the most part, the old school kind of limey schlock wins out. Right. Yeah. Good fun. Cool. Um, and the remake of The Blair Witch Project has been receiving pretty mixed reviews, mm-hmm. by which I mean everyone but me seems to dislike it. Yeah. Uh, I saw this with a friend of the show, Darren Bevan, and I felt we were on either end of the spectrum on it. Uh, but I can't help feel that the director... Adam Wingard and writer Simon Barrett are playing kind of a fun game of genre shenanigans here, setting up the expected retread, dipping into body horror, before plunging into a pretty gruelling final 20 minutes that had me deliciously on edge. Uh, There are, of course, flaws. There's a pair of black characters who identify as black characters because they behave and then are eliminated in pretty much the style and order you'd expect if you grew up as a horror fan through the 80s and 90s. Um, And that's probably the worst element. And the sense that all of this is maybe way too familiar. But on balance, I really enjoyed it. Right. I just felt that that home stretch was particularly solid, mm-hmm. you know, and, and grim, and I, I, I was clenching in my cinema seat, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, look, and way less divisive is one of the best horrors, if you can call it a horror, of the year, Don't Breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story of three hoods who become the victims when they try to rob the home of a blinded former soldier is so intricately built and wonderfully tense. The set pieces are artfully arranged. Uh, none more so with, than when the unstoppable veteran kills the lights and traps two of the would-be burglars in the darkened cellar, like a cruel reverse of Audrey Hepburn's famous Wait Until Dark. Uh, it's immaculately constructed. Uh, it's wonderful sound design, and it's got a deliciously dark sense of humour. So I found it real like a sinister joy to watch. Yeah, I've heard great things about that. Yeah, no, it is really solid, eh? Yeah. And it's really well, uh, it's really well put together. And, like everything kind of makes a sort in, a certain sense in the film. Yeah, as ludicrous as it might seem when you're watching it, but yeah, you know, it does all. Everything hangs together, and it's just such well orchestrated mayhem. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So anyway, how about you? Actually, I haven't watched that much this month, but um, considering our podcast theme is seems appropriate, that the first film I did watch this month was Steven Soderbergh's Hitchcockian thriller Side Effects. Oh, right. Uh, Rooney Mara shines as a woman coping with depression and her husband's return from prison for embezzlement by taking an experimental drug recommended to her by her cocky therapist, played by an appropriately smug Jude Law. I mean, if you're going to cast smug, you've got to cast Law. He's good at smug, eh? Hey, uh, that should be on his business card, I think. Smug. Smug. With its color palette, flashbacks, and thriller elements, it actually recalls Soderbergh's little scene 1996 film, The Underneath. And while it doesn't deliver anything new, side effects is quite a cleverly crafted story and i think most of that's down to soderberg speaking of thrillers next time you get your google on type in great thrillers and chances are tell no one appears so naturally under such recommendation i watched this french thriller uh the film has an intriguing plot but is quite devoid of tension i found and the plot has some pretty big holes in it but it is very successful at stringing the viewer along to its conclusion tell no one yeah tell no one yeah it's a french film it's worth checking out but Honestly, like if you start typing in thrillers, it'll appear on ninety percent of the lists. Wow, did not know this. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. Right. And, and on that recommendation, you think you're going to get blown out of the water, and you're not. Confirmation. 
the HBO film about the testimony of Anita Hill during the confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Judge Clarence Thomas. Uh, it has a good cast doing some solid work, and as good as Kerry Washington is at playing Professor Hill, uh, I really enjoyed seeing Wendell Pierce as Clarence Thomas. Uh, he's from The Wire, and he um, turns up playing a lot of kind of um, comedy best friends. So it was quite nice to see him playing against type. It's a quiet man seeing his career unravel around him. And Pierce does very well revealing Thomas's slow-boiling personality rumbling underneath this visage of calm at the beginning. Um, the film clearly has a point of view on the he said, she said nature of the hearings, and I'm sure most people who remember the trial will have one too. Uh, but this film does fall into the character trap of having like Republicans as ethically shady bullies and the Democrats as lily-livered appeasers, or as Team America puts the, puts the, the divided assholes and pussies. Mm. <laughs> Porn Sacrifice, uh, that's P-A-W-N. <laughs> right. um, the straightforward telling of perhaps the most famous chess battle of all time, uh, not including the one between Max von Sydow and Death, of course. Bobby Fischer and Boris Spatsky. Uh, the film does a good job in showing not just what Fisher's victory meant during the Cold War, but also how he won with such style, uh, playing some of the most mesmerizing chess ever seen. Uh, Toby Maguire plays Fisher as the belligerent, demanding prodigy he was, but it's actually Lee Schreiber who really gives a quiet wisdom and pathos to Boris Spatsky. Uh, the film is solid, but nowhere near as riveting as the documentary Bobby Fisher Against the World. If you want to watch something right, on this, I've heard about that. yeah, I think I've talked about it in this podcast. Yeah. If you want to watch something that covers this topic really well, uh, check out the documentary Bobby Fisher Against the World rather than this. I saw Ratatouille. Uh, yep, Pixar's tale of a supremely talented culinary rat secretly working in a Parisian restaurant. The voice work is great, especially um, the late great Peter O'Toole as a feared food critic. Uh, the animation work from the fur of the rat to the representation of the romanticized Paris streets is really charming too. I really like that. And finally, I saw Memories of a Murder, another film that I've seen on many thriller ranking lists. The early 2000s Korean serial killer film is distinctive in its setting and cynicism. In a rural village, a murderer targets women, while the ineptitude of the local police is just astonishing. Um, but it works as a critique of the Korean police system in the 80s, as well as a thriller, and has two really solid lead performances as one corrupt cop begins to find his soul while a clean cop begins to lose his. Uh, reminiscent in some ways of uh, the recent Marshland. Uh, this really does stick in the memory, um, and it has an awesome amount of drop kicks. As one interrogator who would be like the Bud White of this movie, like spends most of the movie literally drop kicking suspects into confessions. They'll say something that he doesn't agree with, and he'll just suddenly jump up and fly across the table and kick them in their wow. face. And he looks like the um, the bad guy in Hard Boiled, you know, the John Woo film. Yeah. You know, the guy's got the eye patch. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got the same hair. Mad hair-cut. Dog. Mad Dog, yeah. He's got the same haircut and the same, like, jacket. He looks exactly the same. As soon as I saw him, I went, oh. And this guy's basically a Mad Dog character. So, um, yeah, yeah. Memories of a murder. I've heard good things about this. Yeah, it is. It, it's, yeah. it's quite, um, it, it's very effective. Yeah. Mother, this is your son, Roger Thornhill. Yeah. Wait a minute, I'll find out. Where am I? Glen Cove Police Station. Glen Cove Police Station. No, no, Mother, I have not been drinking. No, these two men, they poured a whole bottle of bourbon into me. No, they didn't give me a chaser. So, Simon, what's the news? Well, look, after a long, a long hiatus, Suspiria announcements once again make the spoiler alert news. I think the first time we talked about this, I think Natalie Portman was in the running. But then, of course, Black Swan came and went and Suspiria talk kind of died away. 
but now comes the news that Chloe Grace Moretz will join Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton in the remake, being held by Luca Guadagino. Actually, that sounded right. Yeah, well yeah. done. Uh, who previously directed Swilton in I Am Love and A Bigger Splash. So, look, I'm hardly offended by this announcement, like you think I might be, because yeah. this is one of my favourite films. But news of it being remade has floated around for so long, and this is such a strong cast. Uh, and maybe Suspiria is a good candidate for a remake. Uh, you know, maybe some someone can somehow make it make sense this time around. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I also feel that it's hard to mention anyone topping Argento for style. Yeah, and I think that is the big problem. Like, I think you're just walking into a hailstorm of, of criticism. Yeah. Because, I mean, like you say, it's it's like trying to remake a Razorhead. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Like, yeah. you're yeah. only really going to... Yeah. yeah, I can't care about remakes of Friday 13th because it's a, it's a flat, stylish, yeah. stylish film. So do what you can, you know, but um, it's, it's going to be very hard to imagine somebody topping what Argento achieved with this film. Yeah, I agree. But on the other hand, uh, it's a good cast. Um, why not? Well, it's only taken five installments, but the Transformers franchise may have just finally won me over. Because through a decision that I like to think was reached through the producer's soul-searching that resulted in the philosophical conclusion that life is futile, so why not embrace the chaos? Winston Churchill is fighting Nazi robots. Why not? The Transformers are going into an alternate dimension where the Nazis conquered the world and Winston Churchill will be like some kind of John Connor resistance style leader. Uh, but the real news is that the production are using Churchill's actual property as a Nazi base and even hung swastikas from his house. Um, the irony caused a big stir that Churchill's family, apparently, were not that worried about claiming that the fuss, much like how most of us view the whole Transformers franchise, was all rather silly, unimportant and beneath them. Yeah, it, it clearly is, too. Um, <laughs> I don't, maybe they're Transformers fans. So maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't really care yeah. um, on one hand because it's a Transformers film. Yeah. But that is bizarre. It sounds like Iron Sky, you know, that film about Nazis on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like a really, to me, that sounds super B-grade. I mean, who knows? I haven't watched a Transformers since the first one. So, you know, I have no idea what's going on in that franchise. But <laughs> I just, I think it's hilarious that they've just gone, oh, we're just going to make basically dead snow. Yeah, <laughs> with, with robots. Two of my passions that barely ever cross over intersected this month, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm a wrestling fan. I love a bit of fake fighting set to soap opera storylines, so I should be excited about the news that a dramatic film based on the life of a former champion wrestler is going into production. Uh, the problem is, the wrestler they're making a film about is Chris Benoit. Oh. A man who took his own life back in 20, uh, 2007 after first murdering his wife and son. Now, there can definitely be a good film made out about uh, made about this tragic story, one that maybe looks into his drug abuse, the steroid issues, the multiple concussions and depression issues that you know may have contributed to his appalling crimes. But it's also likely that Crossface, the title of the film that director Lexi Alexander will helm, will be a grim slog, possibly kneecapped by an almost predictable barrage of legal moves by the WWE. Um, Lexi Alexander, for me, is a bit of a mixed choice. She's an Oscar-nominated short film director and a former karate champ, so she sh should understand the world she's dealing with. But she also directed Punisher Warzone. Right. You know, which was not great. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this, this one's an odd one for me. I, kinda, I can't imagine it going to production. I just imagine it's legal. Well, tie it up. Right. Because the WWE are not going to want to be seen in a bad light. And you can't tell the story without telling that backstage politics, I don't think. Yeah. And the things that led to this. Um, and there's naturally been a load of like fantasy casting, mm -hmm. you know, going on. Tom Hardy's name comes up a lot, and I've ignored all this because 
you know, Tom Hardy's not going to be in it. Nor is Chris Hemsworth going to play Triple H. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. That's not going to happen no matter how much people say it. But then someone said, Vince McMahon needs to be played by Dennis Quaid. Oh, yeah. And I stopped for a minute and said, yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> that is like the best casting. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. He, he's got that growliness, you know, yeah. and that kind of... yeah. Yeah, the bigger than life presence as well. I can yeah. see it. I can totally see that. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, uh, that hasn't really stopped them from making other films. You know, like there's the one that's coming out with Michael Keaton about the McDonald's yeah. or, you know, the social network with Facebook and all the rest of it. Yeah. Although I think that they got around that because that was public record, I think, wasn't it? A lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I'm going to be careful. And it's based on a book. Right. So um, I'm sure if there were legal issues, the book would have run into them as well. So. Yeah. But, but I'm guessing it would be greater attention again once it becomes a film. Yeah. Do you reckon they have room for Doink? Doink? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. And the gobbledygooker. I don't know, don't know how he'd play into it, but mate, he's hoping. <laughs> Viola Davis is on a career surge. She's always had a knack for stealing films from her heartbreaking single scene in Doubt to her stoic lead in The Help to one of the only praised elements of Suicide Squad and picking up Emmys for her TV work along the way. And now she is part of the Oscar talk for her co-starring role with Denzel Washington in Fences, as well as taking a part in Steve McQueen's new heist thriller, Widows, about four women who joined together to rob a bank. The 12 Years a Slave director hasn't put a foot wrong since his debut, Hunger. So seeing what he does with an all-female crime flick is actually quite exciting. And casting Davis is already a step in the right direction, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds great. Yeah, that would um, be really good. I saw the trailer for Fences. It looked really solid. Yeah, yeah. They were talking yeah. about Oscars yeah. left, right, and center for that. So mm. that's interesting. Uh, Denzel's directing that, isn't he? Did you say? Uh, no, I don't know if he's actually directing it. I didn't. I, I thought he was. Oh, he might be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's starring. And it looks like yeah. a really strong, dramatic. And we were talking about this before off camera, but he does so many like earnest action films that I'd actually l- like the idea of seeing him play a challenging, dramatic role. Yeah, yeah. He used you know? to do it. Yeah, <laughs> he used yeah, to do it in exactly. the 90s. I remember those days. He he used to do it, and then um, he went he went all Nick Cage on us. Yeah, he did a little bit. Eh? I mean, yeah. a better Nick Cage. Yeah. Still, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still getting released in theatres, <laughs> Nick Cage. But <laughs> And finally for me, this month, Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, passed away at the age of 87. Lewis is an important director, perhaps, but certainly not a good one. Mm-hmm. His sole influence on cinema was to introduce the world to the splatter film. After experimenting with nudie flicks with titles like The Adventures of Lucky Pierre, oh, I love that, and Boinging, I, I, I made that double sound because it's actually B-O-I-N-N-G, so I think that is Boinging. <laughs> anyway, uh, he discovered the winning combination of a super low budget and buckets of blood in Blood Feast, a cottage carnage industry, and a disreputable subgenre was born, and Lewis, ever the salesman, would milk every blood-tinged dollar he could to, out of it with films such as 2000 Maniacs and The Gore Gore Girls. <laughs> Eventually, he gave it all in and became a massively successful marketer and writer on the art of advertising before directing a sequel to 2000 Maniacs in 2002. Now, I've trialed and failed to understand the cult of Lewis. <laughs> uh, his films, while gruesome, are also incompetent. The gore is not inspired or well-executed. It's just extremely plentiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has his fans, no doubt, but Lewis himself probably wasn't one of them. As he said about Bloodfeast when he compared it to a Walt Whitman poem, it's no good, but it's the first of its kind. <laughs> so here's to you, Herschel. Your films were rubbish, but you were an originator, and I'll always admire your B-film blood-soaked moxie. <laughs> Excellent.
Now, was he? Um, the, he's the one they talk about in uh, Juno, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've always said I always knew that um, Bateman's character was a bit dodgy when he said he was a fan of um, Lewis's films and that they were yeah. better than um, Suspiria. Yeah. So that's when I know that Bateman's kind of a jerk. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And finally, for me, uh, speaking of horrors, Get Out, the horror film by Jordan Peele, most famous as being one half of the comedy duo Key and Peele, is getting a lot of chat because of uh, its great trailer. The film plays coyly with the uh, racist undercurrents in the US as a guess who's coming to dinner situation doesn't meet the gentle awkwardness of Hepburn and Tracy but the off-kilter and sinister family of Catherine Keener and Bradley Whitford uh, smiling uh. <laughs> manically in the, in the trailer. It's a fresh take on the weird community horror genre it's more Stepford Wives and Children of the Corn but the idea of a black man being suspected by police and fearing for his life amongst an ideal white family is perfectly timed in the heat of the present U.S. political climate. Uh, but the film also seems to have deeper secrets than just this gimmick that I can tell from the trailer. It also casts English actor Daniel Kaluuya, who I've always liked from two appearances in superior comedies in the dark satire Black Mirror and as the only sane voice in the world of Psychoville. If you get a chance to watch it, either Psychoville or Black Mirror, you should definitely check them out. And, he's, right. and that's when I first noticed him. And you know, another English actor like turning up and, yeah. and uh, nailing it. Over in the US. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Look, I saw this trailer yesterday, and I think I grinned for two and a half minutes. Yeah. I was giddy. It's yeah. just such good viewing. Yeah. It's, it's, there are so many great moments in that trailer. And just the whole conceit of it is wonderful. Yeah, it is. Like you say, that Stepford Wives sort of society, this is black man in this bizarre white society. Yeah. Um, yeah it's fascinating. Yeah. It looks to me that it, it's got a delightful blend of comedy and fear as well, which yeah. I'm... I'm really excited about this one. The trailer's sublime. Yeah, the trailer's really good. It's great. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. And welcome to No Comps. This is a part of the uh, podcast where we go and see a film that's in wide release. And we went to see uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Starring Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut with Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, David Fincher, and just loads of other famous directors. <laughs> in 1963, French critic and new wave filmmaker Francois Truffaut reached out to the most famous movie director in the world and asked to interview him. The two met, aided by a translator, and from the resulting meetings, Truffaut would publish one of the great books about cinema, simply called Hitchcock Truffaut. This documentary explains the work significant to both filmmakers involved and to generations of filmmakers afterwards. Look, this is one lovely-looking love letter to a director you should already be a fan of already if you're listening to this podcast. What it clearly adds to the conversation, which the book couldn't, of course, is the thoughts of a host of a great filmmakers who share their love not only for Hitchcock, but for the Truffaut book as well. It's clearly you know, a really important book to so many different filmmakers yeah. and their development. And it's great hearing them talk about it. It is, yeah. It's fantastic. Especially um, Fincher. Seeing him was a joy for me on there. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I recently rewatched Zodiac, actually, and it reconfirmed just how good and, amb and ambitious of a director Fincher is. Yeah. Especially for a commercial director. Uh, and also how clearly he understood and applied the lessons that lie within Hitchcock's art. And the, he tells a story, I can't remember who, it might have been his father, gave him the book and said, you want to be a director? Yeah, you hear gift. It. Yeah, what a gift! And he was like m memorizing all of it, basically. You don't own the book, do you? No, but I I read it in university. Yeah, I remember it in university too, and and I've had actually had a look, and it's 
it's pretty easily available now. Yeah. There are reprints on, you know, uh, Mighty Ape in New Zealand, of course, and mm. Amazon. So it's not a difficult book to get hold of. It. And I think, oh, I've, I've got to get it now. Yeah, yeah. Like you, I remember it from my uni days. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I read it quite a bit during university, actually. Um, I've always been a huge Hitchcock, Hitchcock fan, as you have as well. And um, I love that uh, Truffaut wooed the director with the promise that after the interview, that Hitchcock would be viewed as the greatest director in the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> he really knew how to play into his vanity, yeah, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and as the film is at pains to point out, this book meant Hitchcock was given the validation and recognition as an artist, not just an entertainer, all the more significant because it was from Truffaut, uh, who himself was a respected director. Yeah, yeah. Um, the documentary concentrates on three of Hitchcock's most famous contributions to cinema, Vertigo, Psycho, and The Birds. Uh, the love exposed of Vertigo is infectious, um, but it's also a topic which, as cinephiles, you will hopefully <laughs> already know much about. Uh, especially seeing as it has begun to leapfrog Citizen Kane on the greatest films ever lists. But seeing Hitchcock work on the big screen was a real treat, though. I had become so used to seeing it on the small screen. The wonder and the colour and dreamlike qualities of Vertigo really are something to behold in all its glory. And if it wasn't for the existence of his 1958 film, a large piece of Hitchcock's personality would have been missing from cinema. Uh, it is his confessional, his desires, fears, inspiration and shame all placed there for us to forever examine. Um, because as David Fincher says, if an artist thinks he can hide those elements from an audience, then they're kidding themselves. Yeah, this could very easily turn into just a, a, a review of Vertigo. Yeah. Or, or rather us gushing about <laughs> how much we love Vertigo. Because it's, it's my favourite Hitchcock, Yeah, I've got to say. It's just a wonderful chance to see these great films on a big screen. Mm. Like you say, I mean, that's the real joy of it in some ways. Just seeing Madeline's eerie transformation from Vertigo, you know, all soft focus and green tint. It's, an, it's amazing. Um, was a treat. Or the plunging, shocking death of Arbogast in Psycho. You yeah. Know? Um, they're great moments, and it's a, it's a rare chance you get to see them on a big screen. Yeah. And um, as much as I love everything else about this film, I love so much else about this film, seeing those scenes, and birds as well. I'm a big fan of birds. I, I, yeah. I don't know how it how most people rate that in the Pantheon, but for me it's actually quite high up there. But then again, yeah. you know, I'm a horror fan and there's a – there's a lot of, um, I guess, Night of the Living Dead and the way that the birds are structured. I, yeah. So I really enjoy that. Yeah. Um, and seeing those on the big screen is just a treat. It is, yeah. And I think those three are the significant ones to focus on. I mean, you know, you, you drop North by Northwest in there and they're basically four films in a row, which are probably Hitchcock's four best films for me. Yeah. Vertigo, uh, North by Northwest, Psycho and The Birds. And I think The Birds is the last truly great film he did. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's much debate about that. It is pleasing to hear two cinematic giants like Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut discussing the master's approach to filmmaking. And one benefit of the audio recordings is that they allow for the nuances of Hitchcock that are kind of sometimes lost on the page. Mm. While in both forms he can remain dismissive, especially of his actors, um, in the reading of this book you get the impression that Hitchcock is a bit more pragmatic or methodical, but in the audio recording you hear his intuition and his passion, sometimes even his excitement. Yeah. Um, even more so when he's discussing Truffaut's work, which <laughs> which is regretfully all too brief. Yeah, yeah. There just isn't enough Truffaut in this. I really wanted to get to know more yeah. on Truffaut. Um, only the four hundred blows gets any serious screen time or discussion. Uh, but Truffaut had a freedom that Hitchcock laments he may have missed searching within himself. Yeah, that uh, was an interesting observation, eh? It was, yeah. So it's it's, it's it's a fascinating, rare moment of self-doubt expressed in a letter from the master to a student where he ponders what he would have created if he hadn't stuck so slavishly to expectations and really embraced all the possibilities of cinema. 
And it's even more tragic for someone like Hitchcock because he is, he is the master. So he, you know that he was capable of doing something beyond that. You know what I mean? He could have done something experimental and a, you know, even one or two or three experimental films. Two of them might have not been that good, but one of them was going to be amazing. You just knew it, you know? Yeah. And he didn't allow himself. And I think that that really did make me for the first time go, yeah, you know? Because these directors you that, you know, these masters like Howard Hawks, John Ford, or, you know, Kurosawa, or these people, that they seem so long ago that you're like, well, that's them. But you just you fail to think of them, you know, doubting themselves. Or yeah, in the moment. In the moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that um, you talk about the 400 blows and, and Truffaut's explaining a scene where um, – this kid sees his mum in the street and Hitchcock's like, uh, I can't remember his exact words, but it's like, some, you didn't use dialogue, did you, or something like that. It's like a testy old um, principle. And, of course, the film is able to show you that, yeah, Truffaut used dialogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he used dialogue. And he's like, well, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. But also I like that because he was quite excited by when Truffaut was explaining the the scene to him yeah. out of his film. And you could hear Truff, uh, you could hear it. That's what I mean. Like, if you read that on the page, you might think, oh, exactly that. Like, oh you know, what a bit of a bit of a prick there really. But actually when you hear what I heard anyway was someone who was genuinely excited about talking about totally. the film other yeah. than his and kind of talking about how to direct yep. how he would have directed it. And yep. I really like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you gotta remember that's true that's Truefo's first film, right? Yeah. Wonderful. So yeah. yeah. You know, it's not a bad first film, eh? <laughs> no, not too bad. <laughs> it is a shame they don't talk more about Truefo and, and and that's that's a little bit of um my my issue with the film. Uh, also, like I really loved the film, I enjoyed watching it, but I, I do feel that it does cover some ground that I already, a lot of ground I already knew about Hitchcock because I am such a yep. Hitchcock fan. And you might say, oh, well, that's great, but people can, you know, watch this and then they can learn a bit and then they can learn a bit more Hitchcock. But if you're if you're a bit of a um, neophyte, are you really going to come to something called Hitchcock Truffaut? <laughs> To, to find your gateway, you know? I yeah. don't know. No, no, this isn't your introductory t uh, text. Uh, no. Um, yeah, I kind of agree. I thought at 75, 79 minutes, it's too short. Um, I love the fact that Vertigo and Psycho, I mean, they're great films, obviously. Mm. But it, and as much as I love them, uh, I, I did. there are other films I thought, oh, man, I wanted to hear about Rear Window. Yeah. I want to hear about Rope, obviously. Yeah. You know, I love Rope. And, I, yeah, I really and, want to hear about um, uh, Shadow of Doubt, uh, Strangers on a Train, and Life yeah. Life, those kind yeah, of films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of films that just by necessity of the duration, I, I guess, can't really get talked about. And that's yeah. a little bit of a frustration. And you're quite right. Um you know, if if you love Hitchcock, then you will like this film, but find flaws in it. Yeah. Um. If no, and but no one else is going to go and watch this film. Yeah. Except the person right. who already loves Hitchcock. Yeah. Um. And I thought one of the things that it, it did struggle with a little bit is, at some point, making the book become alive on screen because yeah. there were times where the, we were looking at the pages from a book yeah. filmed, uh, while someone else was talking with their subtitles, and I did not know we were on the screen to look. <laughs> yeah. At the book I'm supposed to be looking at, or the subtitles I needed to read. Yeah. Was, so there were a couple of minutes where they, I think, struggled to bring it all alive. Yeah. And also the audio recording stuff is a little bit because they have uh, Truffaut talking, then a translator, and then Hitchcock yeah, replying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're some, some overlapping with uh, subtitles and the visual representation of the book, as you say. So, yeah, there is like almost too much. I did look up um, Kent Jones afterwards, the director of mm -hmm. this. And he directed uh, Val Luton's The Man in the Shadows. Right. Which was uh, narrated by Martin Scorsese. And um, nice. I kind of love that film as well. Oh, I'm, great. I'm obviously a huge Val Luton fan. Mm. So, um, and he, d he did another one on um, Kazan as well. Right. And I think uh, Scorsese's um, Voyage to Italy, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of other great cinema he, he's, he's um, latched onto there. Um, 
Luge one in particular, I love. Yeah. One of the interesting theories that, as time goes by, kind of becomes insistent as fact, is that Vertigo's box office failure led Hitchcock into hardening, that he felt like he had exposed his vulnerabilities and been rejected by audience and critics alike. And already committed to North by Northwest before Vertigo was released to the Hounds, the next film that he would start from Inception with his newfound aggressive armour of his was to be the, his most famous victory, Psycho, a dirty little black and white movie made on a budget with a TV crew and focusing on someone else's psychologically damaged sexual issues. Peter Bogdanovich and Paul Schrader in this film, and they discuss this film the best when they say it pulled the rug out from under the audience in the theatre, but also set up the decade of the 60s as a whole. Uh, the fascinating and shifting social upheaval that was about to confront these same viewers was, you know, prepared for by Hitchcock in this one film. Yeah, and I love Hitchcock talking about uh, basically throwing a grenade into a room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's how he described the, um, the film, which is great. What a great yeah, phrase, you know. it is. But that that is something that did um, leap out to me as Hitchcock really, that, that's the confines he was working within. You know, he still managed to do things that were, challenging you know yeah um even though he didn't quite kind of have the freedom of someone like Truffaut um and I never realized Truffaut died so young yeah that was yeah, a real was a shock, shock wasn't it yeah. yeah so Hitchcock Truffaut is like a it's it's a testament to both directors and I, I wish it would go deeper into Truffaut's work but Hitchcock has, a, has been for me as I'm sure he is for many the gateway into cinematic appreciation and criticism so I never tire of seeing his work marveled at especially by filmmakers of the caliber of you know, Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, and David Fincher. Totally. Look, this uh, this is a, a kind of film fan's heaven, a delightful way to spend an hour and change in a movie theatre. Uh, and absolutely will, I think, fan or not, uh, make you want to go out and watch some Hitchcock films right away. Yeah. Which, it, is, which is a great thing. Yeah, it certainly did for me, but if I hadn't already watched them 10 times already, I... <laughs> <laughs> 11 times. Go yeah. on. No worries. <laughs> now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theater tickets. And now we're on to the top five. And Simon, there's just been a lot of film directors, as you'd imagine, have been inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. Totally influenced, inspired. Um, Brian De Palma, you can't say his name without mentioning the name Hitchcock somewhere in it. Yeah, you? exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And some are better than others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But people are still, even to this day, are still doing Hitchcock. The amount of times you watch something, you go, that's very Hitchcockian has to be one of the most thrown around terms you'll ever hear in film. Which is why we've decided to make this month about five rip-offs of Hitchcock. Yeah. Good or bad, let's have a find out. So look, I'm starting with Charade from 1963. (laughs) Look, on paper, Charade sounds like the great Hitchcock film Hitchcock never made. There's Hitch regular Cary Grant in a suspicion-like chameleon role, racing around a foreign city, engaging in flirtatious banter in a kind of north-by-northwest fashion. Inevitably, there's a MacGuffin to be fought over, rooftop chases and a dramatic finale. Perhaps only Audrey Hepburn seems out of place. But that's only because Hitch was never able to get her for one of his films. Uh, she was supposed to star in No Bail for the Judge, but pulled out due to pregnancy and perhaps due to a near-rape scene she was uncomfortable yeah. with in the script. And Hitchcock lost interest in the film anyway. So, Charade seems like the most Hitchcocky and non-Hitchcock film with them all. And yet, when I watch it, it's more of a lesson in how hard it is to truly replicate a master filmmaker's style. Mm. Pieces are all there, and director Stanley Donan certainly knows the sort of film he's trying to make. It just feels a bit pale somehow to me. Soulless, maybe. The joking around seems to overpower what should be the thrills and the mystery and the suspense, even if the final set piece is well-staged. 
and I accept I may be alone in this. The film is well regarded, and both leads were nominated for Golden Globes for their work. It just totally doesn't work. Uh, it's too throwaway dark at times, as if it lacks its own conviction. And with an implausible romantic pairing, pairing even if they both try hard, uh, it's a film that draws constant Hitchcock comparisons, and yet for me, never reaches his heights. In the end, the most Hitchcockian thing about the whole endeavour is the exceptional poster art. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one, um, Charade, because it, 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 like I say, has those elements, but it doesn't really kind of commit to any of them. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm in the same camp as you. It took me a long time to watch this film. Yeah. And when I did, I was just a bit underwhelmed. Yeah, me too. I mean, there's ridiculous comical stuff like yeah. um, Grant having a shower while wearing a suit and making jokes about how it's drip dry. Yeah. And then um, actual quite violent moments. Yeah. And it's all in the same film and, you know, uh, scene, scenes butting up against each other, which seem to be. Yeah, you know, just oddly tonally off. Yeah, um, it's, it's got some um, great dialogue in there, and sure. and one of the actors I actually really did like in it was Walter Matthau. Yeah, he's in that, and he 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 kind of it's, it feels slightly like all of the actors are in different films. Yeah, you know, like they yeah, yeah, they yeah. haven't rehearsed together and they've all read it and they haven't discussed it with anyone. They're like, well, I'm just going to do this, and they're all talented actors, but they kind of appear like they're in slightly different films. Yeah, apparently Grant. Um, thought the age difference between him and Hepburn was going to be a problem. So insisted that he don't do any of the chasing. Right. Because he felt it would be weird, this old man chasing after, you know, young Audrey Hepburn. But it actually makes it weirder for me because suddenly you've got young, doe-eyed Audrey Hepburn consistently chasing after old man Cary Grant, you know? Yeah. And he's charming and all the rest of it, but he's also, for most of the film, not really to be trusted. So she just yeah. becomes comes across as kind of an infatuated fool. Yeah, for no way. real reason. But for no great reason because yeah. he's clearly... Not to be trusted. Yeah. I mean, whether or not he is in the end, I'll leave it up to you. But for a long time, she's chasing after a dude she should stay well away from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, as we said, Brian De Palma could make up a top five all on his own. 1981's Blowout is actually one of my favorite De Palma films and definitely my favorite Travolta performance. De Palma minds not only Hitchcock, but also Coppola and Antonioni in crafting uh, this tale of paranoia and duplicity. One of John Lithgow's earliest performances as an assassin who, in his own words, exceeded the parameters of his orders. And in this film, De Palma mocks his own work, critics, and the trend of slasher films that was reaching maximum overdrive in 1981. Halloween's iconic first-person opening provides the view for blowouts opening as well. Scantily clad varsity students dancing, a naked couple having sex, another student pleasuring herself, Finally, the deranged killer is revealed just seconds before pulling back a shower curtain a la Psycho to scare a naked girl. Her scream is striking in its underwhelming effect, and it's this search for the perfect scream that provides the haunting effect that Blowout eventually achieves. Because we are watching a film within a film, and Travolta is the sound designer, the director demanding he find a better scream effect. And also, this is De Palma mocking the genre he has helped popularise with his previous films. And it kind of seems like he's saying, hey, you think my films are misogynistic? <laughs> Check out what these chumps are doing. But De Palma does more than mimic Hitchcock visually. He also does it through character development. Travolta moves from cool, laconic character into a man possessed, working meticulously to prove what he heard was murder. There is an expertly crafted sequence where Travolta realizes all his tapes have been erased. Um, even amongst the blank tape hiss and mechanical whirs, a sound design emerges one of swirling desperation as the camera rotates around and around. It's reminiscent of Vertigo and Travolta of Jimmy Stewart's obsession in that film. 
Despite being told he is wrong and paranoid, he is rock solid in his assertions. De Palma also uses his then-wife Nancy Allen as a perpetual victim and a point of fixation for both the hero and the killer. Allen does a good job in a naive role. Uh, De Palma lifts superficial elements from Hitchcock, like overhead shots and departments and, and then deeper visual styles that give the film a dreamlike quality, but it also goes deeper still than most imitators do. Blowout shares the thematic DNA of a Hitchcockian thriller. Its characters are normal, but also outsiders, torn from their comfort zone by exterior events. But their obsessions take over their lives, driving them towards a dangerous finale. And it is this finale that really makes Blowout stand out from many other Hitchcock ripoffs. Yeah, that's such a great film, and that ending is haunting. It is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Travolta is fantastic in this film. Yeah. I rewatched this recently, and um, I really enjoyed it. And it's shot beautifully. If you haven't seen it, I recommend checking it out. It's really, yep. really good. And it's, for me, out of, I don't, I don't think it's De Palma's best film, but I think of his. Uh, Hitchcock ripoffs is his best film. Right, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. In 1960, one of England's most acclaimed, beloved directors released his most shocking film, a film that challenged us to accept as a protagonist a deeply mentally scarred young man with a predilection for stabbage. Uh, this film, thick with Freudian and voyeuristic overtones, was a startling, outrageous statement that had a massive impact on the film director's career. Now, I could be talking about Psycho, couldn't I? <laughs> but I'm not. I'm talking about one of my all-time favourite films, a film Martin Scorsese described, along with Eight and a Half, is containing all that, all that can be said about directing. Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. And it's as interesting to think about the difference in tr- between the films as it is to dwell on the similarities. While both Peeping Tom and Psycho were kind of gambles, only one paid off. Yeah. Uh, Psycho was a massive hit for Hitch, but Peeping Tom almost ruined Powell. Uh, the reviews were vicious, and the audience stayed away, preferring to come out in their droves months later when Psycho came out. And yet Peeping Tom is so very, very good. Uh, the main character, both protagonist and antagonist, is Mark, a focus pillar on movie sets, who likes filming women in his spare time as he impales them on the sharpened point of his camera tripod leg. So it's a film about voyeurism, about the act of seeing, about the very act of cinema going. Uh, and, it's, and it's, despite everything, funny in a very, very bleak sort of way. I adore the rich colours, the saturated technicolour that reminds you this was the director of the extraordinary Black Narcissus. And the way that he never lets you off the hook for watching fascinated everything that Mark Lewis does. Um, yeah, I really love this film. Yeah. And, you know, I can sort of get, I mean, it's clear why it didn't do well. And I guess part of that is uh, when you're watching Psycho, you don't know that you're following a villain for a while, at least yeah. the first time you see it. Whereas this, you're pretty sure, you know right early on that Mark Lewis is a bad man. Yeah. And, and you have to spend the film with him. And also, you know, Hitch, Hitch was known for, for thrillers. Um, you know, Powell was with the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, you know? Yeah. Um, Hitch had form for this. Yeah, um, that's Powell true. did not, so it came as quite a shock, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a creepy film. And yeah. and also the um, all of Mark's film yeah. childhood is creepy as well, you know, where his father's doing experiments on him and all the rest of it. So Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of this, I mean, we were talking about De Palma, but uh, a lot of this influenced Raising Cain as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful film, um, you know, and it does get loved now, obviously. Uh, I guess partly because Scorsese championed it so much. Yeah. But um, at the time, man, I was reading some stories about um, the previous screening and um, uh, just people were just walking out and right past Powell and just not even talking to him. Just wow. Just no one talked to him. Just, just <laughs> <laughs> didn't even tell him they hated his film, just did not talk. That's incredible. I mean, he was such an amazing director. Yeah, and, sure. Um, yeah, for him to do that, it's real tragic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but amazing the same year as Psycho. 
So, yeah. you know, not a rip-off of um, Hitchcock. No. But, but just fascinating that those films came out at exactly the same point. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just a timing thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe being British as well. Like, who knows? Maybe if they come out in America, it might have been treated differently. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been. Yeah. yeah. On the opposite end of the spectrum to my effusive love for Blowout is Disturbia. <laughs> <laughs> DreamWorks 2007 thriller that stars spoiler alert Hall of Famer and cinematic punchline Shia LaBeouf. But, shockingly, LaBeouf is actually one of the bright spots of the film, committed to his performance while Carrie Ann Moss phones it in as his mother. So how is this a Hitchcock ripoff? Well, certainly not in style. While there is uncomfortable focus on a blonde heroine, she is more in the American Pie jailbait category than the ice-cool Grace Kelly or Tippi and thematically, it holds a little in common with the master's interests. So how it rips off Hitchcock is really only in plot. Young man is under house arrest and begins to suspect his next-door neighbour of being a killer. Armed with binoculars and curiosity, he enlists the help of two others to investigate. Sound familiar? Yes. A rear window clone that was so egregious that it sparked a lawsuit in headlines like Hitchcock sues Spielberg, even though Hitchcock had been dead for about three decades. Um, to say it lacks subtlety is obvious, but it also packs in a backstory that amounts to nothing. And Carrie Ann Moss certainly didn't get the memo on how that backstory should have impacted her character's behaviour. But Hitchcock's imprint is present on the thriller elements. One binoculars scene works very well, but so many scenes don't, and the ending is several levels of ridiculous. But we can all at least rest assured that David Morse made everyone feel uncomfortable on set by refusing to talk to any other actor until after the filming had wrapped. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> he didn't talk to anyone. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love Morse. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he is so good. Yeah, but he's just immediately creepy straight away, though. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, totally. Of course. of course you're killing people. Yeah. You're David. Oh, in the film he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, almost any list of great Hitchcock references could almost also double as a list of films by director Brian De Palma. We've already discussed this. The Palm is famous for his meticulously arranged suspense films, full of gliding camera work, often erotic, frequently gruesome, and almost always owing somewhat of a debt to Hitchcock. None more so than the film in which I first discovered De Palma, 1984's Body Double. In a, clear, in a clear reference to Rear Window, a young actor becomes obsessed with spying on his neighbours, in particular a sexy woman who seems only too eager to entertain him with her stripper routines. And in a clear reference to Vertigo, he is unable to intervene to save her when he believes she's being murdered due to a crippling case of claustrophobia. I like Michael Powell's peeping Tom before it. Body Double was all a bit much for critics and cinema goers. Reviews were savage, the box office woeful, and it spelled the end for his lucrative three-picture deal at Columbia after just one film. <laughs> um, I've got to say, unlike peeping Tom, it's not a, probably a great film. <laughs> but, but look, I, I, I kind of love Body Double. Sure, its tonal swings are nightmarish, the acting often hard to take, and it's definitely not the film you should watch with a young lady you've just met for the first time. Um, actual experience talking to you folks. <laughs> I, I thought we'd enjoy body double together. <laughs> but it's such a heady, wild, colourful brew. All De Palma's obsessions are out on show. They're not pretty sometimes. He does seem to love some low-rent porn and a squeaky voice, Melanie Griffith. In fact, they're downright trashy. But it's never less than entertaining. It's the kind of trash that you wanted show, showgirls to be. Exuberant, mad, and truly the work of a stylist. Um, and look, I'd also say that while we're talking about the Palmer, he also owes a debt to Argento as well. Um, Raising Cain, uh, as well as having a plot from from Peeping Tom, has a twist finale that's straight out of um, uh, Argento's 1982 Giallo Tenebrae. Right, so yeah. He, you know, he is a real magpie, eh? He is, yeah. And um, the 
the the five films that you could make up easily uh body double a yep. blowout raising cane uh dress to kill and obsession yeah and those five alone are just like total hitchcock ripoffs <laughs> um what's interesting is that <laughs> I took my girlfriend on a uh a trip down de palma lane yeah. with um blowout dress to kill and body double oh and oh i hope your body double screening went better than mine she Said that was one of the worst films I've ever seen in my Body life. Body double, yeah, and <laughs> that's harsh. It's the worst of the three, though. Like, who's that guy? The lead dude who looks like it looks like Bill Maher. He just he, and I'm like, what? That's bad casting straight away. But also the thing I don't get with Body Double is that well, I was talking about Blowout before, and and even with Dress to Kill, it's shot really nicely, and Body Double is not. Body Double looks really cheap, uh, and I don't think when it's I don't think when it's supposed to. It's supposed to look cheap when it gets to the porn scenario and everything else yeah um but it's just the performances are pretty terrible in that film and uh except for melanie griffiths and and, and i forgot how late she comes into that film yeah yeah i thought oh yeah she kind of comes in you know halfway through no there's yeah. a good hour you got to sure, slog sure, through man. to get through to like her performance um yeah. it's a weird film that one. Oh, totally like i say i kind of love it for its trash level like he's made a really interesting piece of trash in a way that, like I say, <laughs> some other directors, we, uh, like Showgirls for comparison, that's trash, but it's unwatchable. Whereas I find Body Double just so enjoyably, <laughs> exuberantly trashy. I just, um, that scene where he follows the, the woman around the mall is ridiculous. Oh, that's just crazy. What I don't understand, <laughs> I know we're talking to get to plot devices and plot, plot points here. I don't understand why the woman behaves the way she does. Like, it's just maddening. It doesn't make any sense. Yep. And... Um, and even the end of it, you're like, okay, like, and the twist, you can, I could, you could come seeing a mile away. You know, I had seen Body Double many, many years yep. ago, like I think 20 years ago, I sure. saw it. So I, I knew what happened, but I'm like, well, this is totally telegraphed yeah. from a long way. Oh out. yeah, yeah, it totally is. Hey, yeah. um, you know his, uh, his, is his girlfriend or his wife at the beginning who he um catches in bed with another guy? Yeah, yeah, his, his girlfriend. That's Barbara Crampton from the Reanimator. Oh right, yeah, and um, you know, from Beyond and a bunch of um horror films back in the eighties, right? Who's now actually having a bit of a resurgence, starring in um horror films. Oh wow, again, and apparently quite good. Um, what a, what a thankless role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's terrible. Uh, but also, uh, watch Dress to Kill as well, and that's um, it, it, it's just a different time. Like, sure. I think you you can watch, look back at some of those Hitchcocks, and you can kind of go, oh, you know, there's a different time, but there's kind of common themes that are running through and the, the way that they're filmed but the, the way that the way that like dress to kill is filmed you just it's just mad it's yeah. absolutely mad it's like yeah. alien yeah to watch that now and um yeah department's got some real issues and they were like you said they're really on show there yeah and i think uh, like i say i think that's one of the things i like about this film his issues they're out there yeah <laughs> and the fact that he dresses up nancy allen as a prostitute in pretty much every oh, single film he's ever done man, oh man oh. his wife yeah, his you know, wife, it's like, yeah. whoa, no wonder they divorced pretty swift. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And welcome to the tree of woe. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where we punish cinematic offenders for their, uh, for their crimes in the, month of, in the month of cinema. So, um, Duncan, who are you uh, hoisting up onto the tree of woe this month? Well, mine is a movie called No Escape. Uh, not the whole film, because there is a 20-minute section that puts on a clinic and nerve shredding. But when you're given a moment to breathe and the politics of the film begin to dawn on you, 
A white American family are forced to survive a coup that has erupted around them in an unnamed Asian country, <coughs> Cambodia. Mm-hmm. The film somehow manages to meld guilt over first world privilege with pure xenophobia. Uh, there's one scene where a bunch of tourists barricade themselves on a hotel on a hotel rooftop to stave off the hordes of bloodthirsty attackers, and I challenge you not to feel like you're watching a zombie film. It's basically World War Z where the attackers are just as mindless and unreasonable. Uh, from beating and killing people in the streets to attempted rape to channeling Deer Hunter with the head psycho forcing a child to kill her own father, uh, the film is just relentless in setting these guys up as evil incarnate. So it's the little bits of like armchair politics that sit most uneasily in this film. Like it spends just literally two minutes trying to get across a point about Western exploitation of third world countries, but then spends the other 88 minutes making you sympathise with, with the Western exploiters. It's like Shane, but they spend the whole film focusing on Jack Palance's family. Um, <laughs> so onto the tree of woe with you, half-hearted political afterthought. I'll be sympathising with the family of vultures feasting on you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is uh, Pierce Brosnan and um, Wilson. And Owen Wilson and Lake Bell. Lake Bell. And yeah. Um, yeah, Have you seen it? No, no. I, I read the review with the um, writer-director. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's got this 20 minutes, which, like, as far as tension goes, excellent. Right. Really, really good. Like, really like, wow, that's really good. But then it has this breather where Pierce Brosnan starts talking about why they're in this mess. And, um, yeah, and it's all down to uh, Western, Western exploitation. But just the rest of the time is just making these people like the most evil, horrible people you yeah. possibly can. You know, it's like complete exploitation, you know, 70s death wish kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, what is going on here? Fascinating. Yeah. All right. Look, most months in the tree of woe, I give in to my primal urge to go on a rant, to let loose my venom on something that has truly outraged me in, in our month of film. But there are other times that I go after smaller fish that my complaints seem more like cinematic, pedantic nitpickery. One month, for instance, I even wasted valuable time on Hollywood's poor understanding of distance, <laughs> uh, like anyone but me cared. But since pedantic nitpickery is actually one of the mission statements over here at Spoiler Alert, I'm going to once again attack something I suspect I'm the only person in the world is, is really truly bothered by. Films that open with flash forwards. Yeah. Uh, now, flash forwards aren't new. Even whining about flash forwards isn't new. And they can, I'm sure, be effective. But where they bother me is when they exist in films that are otherwise traditionally structured. A flash forward, if you can call it that, at the top of Pulp Fiction isn't an issue for me because that's the conceit of the film. It's a flash forward from a different POV as well that pays off later in the film. There's a real point to that structure. But the first time I became truly aware of the inessential flash forward was J.J. Uh, Abrams' Mission Impossible 3, a film, where, a film whose flash-forward actually got mentioned in reviews. But I guess even then it was seen as a, a kind of a newish kind mm. of structure. Uh, more recently, Ben-Hur kicked off with a flash-forward, and this month's otherwise excellent Don't Breathe did so as well. And I'm pretty sure of a couple of things in all these cases. Firstly, the flash-forward is there solely to go, hey, don't worry, the good stuff is coming. You've just got to get through this first act. Yeah. Um, certainly, was, certainly was true of Ben Hur. It was totally true <laughs> of Ben Hur. And I understand that thinking of Mission Impossible 3, which otherwise would open cold on just Tom Cruise getting engaged and having a party. Mm. Um, I'm convinced that the Don't Breathe one is there for the same reason, and even more convinced that was the thinking behind the Ben Hur one. The other thing I'm pretty sure is that, is that these flash forward openings did not exist in the script stage. Uh, I know for that, that for certain with MI3. I'm pretty sure they were created by Nervous Nellies in the edit suite. And the thing is, in every case, they should have been sorted actually at that script stage. Mm. Don't Breathe was fine. The flash forward added little and would have taken nothing by being taken away. 
MI3 could maybe have done with a tighter opening. But really, I had no problem with that as well. And in Ben Hur's case, they were right to be concerned. <laughs> that first 30 minutes of that film is a hot mess. Having a flash forward there to reassure us that the chariot race is coming is pointless. Because we all knew a chariot race <laughs> was coming. The poster is a chariot race. That's pretty much the only reason we were there to watch Ben Hur. It's for the chariot race. You didn't have to show us that it would happen. Yeah. So the next person who says, hey, you know what would really help the opening of this film? How about a flash forward to something from the third act? I hope that person has a premonition, a vision of an event in their future, in which they're thrust up on the gnarled lower branches of a dead tree in the middle of the desert with only vultures for company, or they contemplate the wisdom of using flash forwards ever again. Yeah. I think the only time that I've really liked it was in Fight Club. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> clearly I'm not saying... Wholesale, get rid of these. Yeah, things. but you like you say, there's a there's a there's a structural there's a plot structure reason for that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, totally. You know when they're thrown in there because they're worried. Yeah, they're worried that their opening isn't strong enough. So if they hint at something cool later on, it's yeah. gonna you know yeah, it's gonna be okay. Oh, I'm gonna be looking out it's for that. Not. I'm gonna be looking out for those now. Yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert. Okay, and so that's spoiler alert for this month. We're yep. done another one. So Simon, we've got the. Um, Halloween night coming up. Yeah, Halloween twenty uh, ninth of October at Spoon Studios in Ponsonby again from six pm. That's gonna be awesome. Uh, what films have you got? Uh, we're kicking off with Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Excellent. At six at eight o'clock. Death Spa. I'm really looking forward to that. Death Spa is kind of amazing from the eighties. Lots of lycra, lots of big hair. Yeah. Leg warmers and murder. Yeah. Um, and at ten, the sickest film of the night, easily. Pieces, excellent. Uh, which is an insane uh, Italian-directed uh, but American-made film uh, about a college campus with a chainsaw murderer running around. How they never hear him is remarkable <laughs> to me. Um, and then at midnight, uh, from the people who bought you Blood for Dracula from last year with Udo Kier, everyone from that film is back on board for Flesh for Frankenstein. Excellent. Well, that's great. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to all of those. Oh, that's awesome. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, especially looking forward to Death Spa. I think that's going to be a good one to get there for 8 o'clock. Cause yeah, I reckon it's, it's one of those rare film uh, Halloweens where I love all these films equally. Yeah. I have no favourite babies. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's they're awesome. They're all great fun. Okay, well, so that's um, spoiler alert for this month. And the song we're going out to is uh, a reinterpretation of the theme from Charade. Now, yep. I'm not certain, but I believe Charade, uh, the theme was done by Henry Mancini. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so this is done by the legendary Phantomus, um, and their reinterpretation uh, very liberally <laughs> yep. of the theme. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening, and um, hopefully we'll see you at Halloween night. Yep. If not? If not, we'll see you next month. All right, take care. Yes. <laughs> Say, putting our toe in the cold water of fear.